Hi everyone, I'm Lena and I'm going to be doing a scripture today. Today, it is chapter 5, Matthew verse 1 to 7. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, a big thanks to Lena for reading our scripture this morning. If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? Uh, we are going to be going through the Beatitude, the Beatitudes again this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can download the YouVersion Bible app from any app store, whether it be Google or Apple, or you can find a version of the Bible online. And as you do that, let's take a moment to pause to be still, to be silent. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you maybe could use this time just to, to slow down your breathing. If you are a follower of Jesus, use this time to slow down your breathing and then invite Jesus to meet you and teach you this morning. Take a moment to do that and then I will pray for our time together as I then begin this morning's teaching. Jesus, we are thankful for this opportunity to listen to you. And so, Jesus, I pray ultimately that they would not be my words, but they would be yours, and that you would multiply this teaching, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, every single summer, with the exception of this past summer, and we'll have to see what happens this summer, Church of the City has a partnership with Camp Wajidwin. Camp Wajidwin is a kids' uh, cr Christian camp that is up north in the Muskokas. It's a partnership with Muskoka Bible Conference Grounds. And this partnership allows Church of the City and Camp Wajidwin to also then go and partner with families from our city who would otherwise, if it wasn't for our donations, and for our giving and the opportunity to really organize it. Families from our city, from vulnerable families. These can be families that might not have the resources financially to send their kids to camp. And so Church of the City has said, hey, we want to send your kids to camp for a week. And so we have been doing this every single year, as I said, with the exception of last summer. We're still thinking and praying about what that might look like this summer, obviously, as it relates to COVID-19. But we go away for this week of camp, and it's really a vacation for many of these kids. And if if you've ever been uh, to have a Christian camp experience, an immersive experience like that, you know how powerful these experiences can be. And I'll never forget a few years ago, this was my last year participating. It was kind of a handoff year to Spencer, our pastor of Missional Living, who now gives oversight uh, to that particular camp week. I'll never forget the, the team up there, the staff coordinated this, this day of like enormous games out on this big piece of grass. And one of those games, they got this huge piece of plastic tarp and they covered 
covered the tarp in uh, dish soap or a type of soap and then they put water on it. And as you can imagine, the tarp, because it was plastic, became extremely slippery. And then what they did was they said, okay, now we're gonna play some games. And so there was cabin versus cabin, guys versus girls. It was an amazing time. And then they brought out a tug of war rope and they said, okay, we are gonna do kids versus leaders. And so I was not going to miss out on this opportunity to beat uh, some kids at a game of tug of war. And so I got in there and I was pulling on one end with the other leaders. Spencer was in there pulling on the rope with the other leaders. And I have a picture here of what the result ended up being, which should be appearing for you now on the screen. Now, if, if I could caption this picture, I think I would caption it with no mercy. I mean, you can see the competition and the joy and the kind of the ecstasy that came from this winning experience as kind of foolish as it is because we as leaders defeated a group of uh, young kids. But it was a moment of competition. Now, I think that this picture and the reason I bring up the caption of no mercy is because as we continue in our Beatitudes today, we come to this Beatitude about mercy. And this beatitude is going to appear now on the screen for you. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now this beatitude is in some ways a bit of a turning point in the Beatitudes thus far. And what I mean by that is that the first four Beatitudes, Jesus highlights and he focuses upon the inner attitudes of those who are characterized in his kingdom. You'll remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so what Jesus is doing, he's focusing on the inner attitudes. And now at this turning point with blessed are the merciful, he is now showing how this inner attitude or this inner consciousness as in a recognizing our absolute need for God now transitions with a disposition to the way that we live our lives. And so if we truly recognize our poverty of spirit, of our helplessness apart from God, if we come to mourn our sin and our brokenness and the brokenness in the world around us, which results then in meekness, that we will then have a gentle, a submissive and tender spirit, then leading us to desire righteousness, right standing with God through our justification, a right relationship with God, but then also hungering and thirsting for righteousness as it relates to justice in the world. All four of those things things, if they characterize who we are, will transition us to become, as we see today, a merciful people, and then the Beatitudes will continue, an outward disposition. Now, as I've been challenging us since the beginning of this Beatitudes series, this is Jesus' picture in the Beatitudes of the good life, a vision of the good life, a vision in here, as we're going to see, that includes the merciful, now, I want you to begin to think about the merciful. I'm going to define it here in a moment. But the merciful, specifically as it relates to the ideas or the concepts of what is the good life in our culture. And I think the concept of mercy, as we're going to come to understand it, stands in direct contrast to the position in our world. You know, you saw that photo of me. I was ecstatic. You know, and again, it's in a silly way because I defeated young kids in a tug of war. But that shows kind of this competitive nature within me. No, there was no sense in any way of I'm going to show any sort of mercy. And as I've been going through the study of the text this week, I've come to understand that some of that in me 
is because of a self-reliant attitude that I have at a heart level. What I mean by this is if I struggle with poverty of spirit, my helplessness apart from God, if I say, you know what, I don't want to experience a helplessness apart from God because I think that I can actually do it, that I can strive to earn God's approval and favor, then I'm not going to be a very merciful person because I'm going to expect others to rise to the challenge and I'm not going to show any mercy because I think that they need to be strong. And I think one of the ways this plays out as parents is that we don't show a lot of mercy sometimes to our kids as it relates to their behavior. Or sometimes, you know, when it, maybe it's even in play. I mean, when I wrestle my kids, I never let them win. <laughs> you know, maybe you're the same. And I think for me, I think, well, they've got to, you know, become strong and they've got to become tough. And there's certainly a degree within our world of a reality of growing to have grit or strength or toughness. But doing so without a lack of mercy, as we're going to come to see, is not the way of the kingdom. And maybe our perspectives on toughness and how to bring about toughness in our children or in ourselves is not characteristic of the beatitude of mercy as we may come to see. And so some introductory things as we begin to jump in here. So with that, as I've been doing, let's first answer a question. Who are the merciful? When Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, how does he characterize and define those that are merciful? Well, the Greek word for merciful comes from the Greek word eleemon, and what it means is beneficial or charitable. In the Greek Old Testament, also known as the Septuagint, the same term is used to translate the Hebrew word hesed, which you might be familiar with, which is one of the most commonly used, it's one of the most commonly used words to describe God's character. And it can also be translated, maybe in your version, as mercy, love, loving kindness, steadfast love. In other words, another way of putting it is this hesed love, this eleemon, is love in action or help in action. And so here's how I would define the merciful based upon my reading and study this week. It's going to appear on the screen. The merciful are those who through their relationship with God have genuine compassion and concern for others and who respond by doing something to relieve the situation, expecting nothing in return. Let me read that again. The merciful are those who through their relationship with God, you'll be familiar at this point if you've been sticking with us through the Beatitudes series, that the blessed ones are those who have deep happiness and contentment, which is through their relationship with God, not dependent upon circumstance. And so the merciful then are those who through their relationship with God have a genuine compassion and concern for others and who respond by doing something to relieve the situation without expecting anything in return. Now, if you think about this definition, you can recognize that this is none of our natural temperaments. None of us will naturally respond. Even if, I think we can think of maybe some definitions of mercy within our own culture, but think about this definition and how it goes against much of the way that our culture thinks and operates. Interestingly, it's not so different than the way the first hearers and the first culture or worldview would have thought about mercy at the time. 
So some of the historical context, the Jews, religious Jews in particular, who would have heard these Beatitudes, they were generally not merciful people, which may be no surprise based on their attitudes of self-righteousness, of self-concern, of self-reliance, and their pride and their judgment. In fact, most of Jesus' Jewish audience considered mercy not even to be a virtue because mercy in their life was reserved for two types of people. The first were those who were going to be guaranteed to reciprocate mercy back. Maybe a friend, maybe a family member. Or a second group would be those who would be moved through their act of mercy to reciprocate mercy back. Which is ultimately then, if you're reserving mercy for those that you can guarantee to bring it back to you through your mercy, it's really potentially through a selfish motive and action. And as you can imagine, this is an incredibly, what we can understand is maybe a limited understanding of mercy, as most people would therefore not reciprocate mercy because mercy is not our natural temperament. So that was the Jewish worldview, but how about the Roman worldview? There was a popular Roman philosopher who was known to call mercy as the disease of the soul. And it was seen in Roman culture as a supreme sign of weakness. Showing mercy in Roman culture indicated that a person did not have what it took to be a real Roman. Romans glorified courage, they glorified strict justice, and they glorified absolute power. Some examples during Roman history is that a father had the right to decide whether their newborn child would live or not. And so when the child was presented to the father, kind of turned towards the father, the father had the power to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And if the father gave a thumbs down, the child would be drowned. Citizens had a similar sort of power over their slaves. And husbands even had the same power over their wives allowing them to put them to death on extremely minimal grounds. As I read a quote from a commentator this week, they said, a society that despises mercy is a society that glorifies brutality. And I think it's easy for us to look at this Roman culture and say, you know, how sick, how profane. But think about some of the realities of our own culture and those that are at the whims of power, of desire, of, of the desires of the wealthy in particular that comes at the expense of the poor or the vulnerable. Or we can think about the lack of mercy that is shown towards the unborn. Now to illustrate the true nature of compassion and mercy, Jesus tells a very familiar parable. And so what I want you to do is go with me. I'd invite you to go with me to Luke 10, 25 to 37. And he shares this parable, a very well-known parable to many people, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, of the good Samaritan. Now, you might not recognize it or remember this fact, but Jesus told this parable in response to a question. And so we're going to go to verse 25 uh, to 29 to first explore the context in which Jesus shares this parable. So verse 25 of Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer would have been an expert in the law. 
And so he comes to Jesus with the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's maybe not so different than a question that you might have of what might I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus respond to him? Well, he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, this is the lawyer in response, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus affirms his answer. You're, you're right, you, you know the law. But he, look verse 29, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I want you to think again about the context. Religious Jews thought that it was only wise to show love and mercy to those who would reciprocate or towards those who would reward them with acts of mercy and love in return. And so this is likely what the lawyer has in mind as far as his understanding of loving thy neighbor. But look how Jesus responds, and this is the parable. So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, in the time of Jesus, it's going to be a photo appearing on the screen for us now of what this road was like and is like. This is a picture of part of the road. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for its danger and for its difficulty. And when it was actually known as the way of blood because of the blood which was often shed there by robbers. Therefore, what we can understand is that for Jesus' typical audience and for this lawyer, the scene that Jesus is describing could be understood as typical. Like, yeah, that, that's the way of blood. You know, people, people die there. Look what Jesus says next, verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, the man beaten and left half dead, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So now here is where things begin to get interesting, at least from your point of view and from my point of view. As Jesus here is clearly, as we see, digging at the identity and the actions of religious Jews. But remember, given the context, is he not just here stating the obvious, you know, the obvious point number one, that Jews avoided showing mercy to anyone who would not reciprocate. And so for this priest and this Levite who are going down the road, obviously this man is not going to be able to reciprocate their, the mercy. So they walk by on the other side and avoid him. Or secondly, that the two Jews may have felt that this man deserved his wounds. As I said, it was common for this to happen on this road. And so therefore, these Jews, this Levite and this priest may be saying, uh, yeah, that happens on this road. You know, you should have taken greater precautions. You know, you deserve this. And so I'm not going to show you mercy because you're deserving of what has happened to you. Now, I think we can liken this 
if we're to apply it to ourselves, to any excuse that we may have from withholding compassion and mercy. You know, one of these things could be they deserve it. They did this to themselves. This is the consequence excuse. You can think about those that are vulnerable in our society. Well, if they were stronger, you know, they wouldn't be in this sort of situation. Interestingly, this is actually what karma is, is very much about and why religions and countries with karma worldviews also have high levels of poverty because karma goes against acts of mercy because the person who's experiencing maybe poverty or whatever it might be is the person living with the consequences of bad decisions and choices from the past. So there's the view and the consequence excuse. There's also the excuse at times, and maybe you've had this, of they will take advantage of my kindness. It's the enabling excuse. You know, if I'm nice, they're just going to think that the niceness is just going to keep on rolling. So I'm not going to show kindness. There's also an excuse of they may want more than what I'm prepared to give, which is a mercy limitation excuse. Or how about they are unclean? This is the self-righteous purity excuse. Or how about another thing that comes up for us, which can be, I just don't have the time. Back in October, I was on sabbatical and I was at a monastery in Niagara Falls. And there was one morning where I was going for a walk. I would go on these walks and I'd spend time in prayer. And I was walking through downtown Niagara Falls, kind of did this loop that would then take me by the falls. And there was a shop that was closed. And so there was obviously then an opportunity within this doorway that was kind of enclosed from the wind and from the elements. And within this doorway was a man that I passed by that looked like he was really struggling. There was a wheelchair sitting there. And he, as I walked by, was kind of tipped over, kind of facing the ground. And as I walked by, I'll be honest, I felt conviction. I was like, I, I should stop and see if this man needs help. Now, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I actually didn't stop. And some of these excuses are things that went in my mind. You know, the uncleanliness, COVID, time. Do I have the time? I don't know what sort of time this is going to take. And I kid you not, that was the longest walk I took because as soon as I walked by, I began to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so I did my loop and I said, you know what, I'm going to go back and check that doorway. And so I went back and the man wasn't there. And I'll be honest, I spent some time that afternoon kind of grieving this response from me. I was like, I'm here away on this personal retreat. I'm supposed to be communing with God and I couldn't show mercy to this man. Now, in God's grace, the next day, I went for the same walk, and I came across the same man, and God gave me another opportunity to minister to him, and so I asked him if there was anything that I could do, and so I was able to get him a tea, and I came back, I gave him the tea, and then I found out his name, and I was able to, to pray for him, and so we had that interaction. The next part of the parable may be familiar but let's come to reading it with maybe renewed hearts and eyes. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, in, in the previous details of the parable, 
Things may have been considered, as I said, typical or to be expected. But here in this verse is where things begin to get interesting and even provocative. And there's a couple of reasons. And the first is that this man that has compassion is a Samaritan. Now, it can be hard for us to understand in our Western culture, in our particular time, the divisive gap that existed between Jews and Samaritans, a gap that that was the result of ethnic and religious convictions, which had resulted in prejudice and racism that had been compounded over many, many years. A modern equivalent, it's difficult to even come up with one, but you could maybe think about the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine. So deep was the divide that Jews would not even travel through Samaria and they would actually take a longer route around Samaria to avoid any contact with Samaritans. Yet here, what do we see Jesus identify as the man who shows mercy? The Samaritan who has compassion. So challenging the racism and the prejudice of his day which the Samaritan in the parable, you know, thinking about the culture, may have felt he has compassion. And this is actually key to our understanding of mercy and that mercy comes from compassion. Or we could also say love. Now imagine the Jews or even the lawyer's response at a heart level. They may be saying, how can a Samaritan be capable of compassion? The two ideas or concepts would probably be opposites in their mind. Again, due to their own prejudice. But look what the Samaritan does. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And here in this verse, lies the Samaritan's mercy because his compassion and his love leads him to sacrificial action by meeting the man's need, expecting nothing in return. He likely uses his own clothes for bandages, his own wine for disinfectant, his own oil for a soothing lotion, and his own animal for transport, and then his own time to take care of him. Verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And here in this verse, we see the Samaritan go above and beyond, which actually indicates a detail about the difference between mercy and grace. John MacArthur in his commentary puts it this way, mercy deals with the symptoms, grace with the cause. Mercy offers relief from punishment, grace offers pardon from the crime. Mercy eliminates the pain, grace cures the disease. And so applying that to this parable, the good Samaritan showed mercy by having compassion, turning aside and bandaging up the man who was beaten and robbed, expecting nothing in return. But it was grace flowing from his mercy that provided him lodging until he was made well. 
Now, once the parable has been told, Jesus then asks the lawyer the following question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer's response, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice that in response to the question, the lawyer does not say the Samaritan. He simply identifies him by his actions, the one who showed him mercy. And then in verse 37, Jesus ends this encounter with saying, you go and do likewise, which leads us back to the next part of the beatitude. If this is a, if this is a characterization of the merciful, what does the next part of Jesus' beatitude say? Blessed are the merciful, for what? For they shall receive mercy. So what is promised? Mercy. Now while mercy, notice here, while mercy cannot be guaranteed from those who we show mercy to, God promises that he is merciful to us when we show mercy to others. And scripture backs this up. Look at this verse on the screen. Matthew 25, verse 44 to 46. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and you did, and did not minister to you? Then Jesus will answer saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Because of your lack of mercy, and verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now you might say, well, well why the prominence of mercy? Why the prominence of mercy? And the answer to that is that according to the scriptures, an individual's mercy or lack thereof is a key indicator of whether or not they have experienced God's mercy. And this is illustrated in a parable, another parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. Here's how that parable ends. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. If you look at the further context and the parable, you see that there is this, this servant that owes his master an insurmountable sum. It's so much he'd likely never be able to pay him back. And the master says, shows him mercy, and out of mercy flows forgiveness and says, you don't have to pay me back. This servant then has, an, has his own servant who owes him a much lesser amount, a manageable amount to pay back. And the servant who was initially shown mercy does not show mercy to his own servant. And so these verses are representative of this first master, the master coming to his servant and saying, how could you not show mercy when I had shown you so much mercy? And so what we learn from this parable and the testimony of the scriptures is that mercy expressed is first and foremost a response to mercy received. 
Mercy in this sense, some interpret this beatitude to say that mercy is a way to earn our salvation or earn our standing with God. And this is not the case. Mercy is our response. Being merciful is our response to God's mercy to us. It's not a way to earn our salvation. Well, you may be feeling now the weight of these verses about mercy. And here's the good thing as it relates to mercy received being an opportunity for mercy expressed or that our mercy that we receive from God should be leading to a merciful life as we've considered the first four Beatitudes and now to the fifth. Each of those four attitudes or characteristics of the Christ follower will lead to a merciful life as we come to understand our helplessness, mourn our sin, brokenness, meekness, hungering, thirsting for righteousness will lead to mercy. But here's the great thing about the fact that mercy expressed is first and foremost a response to mercy received. Here's the good news. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7 will be on the screen now for you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his graces and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now from this text, see first that God is rich in mercy, but then also see where his mercy flows from his incredible love. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly. And maybe all of you went and ordered that book because it's now sold out on Amazon. But here's what he writes as it relates to these verses from Ephesians about God being rich in mercy. He writes, Nowhere else in the Bible is God described as rich in anything. The only thing that he is called rich in is mercy. What does this mean? It means that God is something other than what we naturally believe him to be. It means that our regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug the hardest. It means that his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, and magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his loves to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. God is rich in mercy. And I felt the richness of Christ's mercy following that situation I told you about when I was in Niagara Falls and I passed this man. That afternoon I was, I was meditating upon that and then Christ reminded me of his incredible mercy. 
And he provided me with, by his grace, an opportunity to meet this man again. And so what we see is that God's mercy, what is one of the ways we can see God's mercy? We clearly see it in Jesus, who is really the better Samaritan, who as we understand from the scriptures, who saw our brokenness and responds with compassion, who dies for us, paying the cost for our salvation by shedding his very own blood on the cross while we were still sinners. He then reconciles us to God and to one another through his sacrifice. And on the cross, what Jesus does is he satisfies the Father's justice. And when someone trusts in that satisfying sacrifice, God then gives his mercy and what Jesus also says is that he promises that he will come again to restore and inaugurate the new heaven and the new earth where we will live in and experience his mercy and his joy forever. God is rich in mercy. And so if you feel like in your life you are not a great example of the merciful, would you go back to Beatitudes 1 to 4? Not that they're progressive in this sense, but they help us understand our heart condition before God. And as we sit in our poverty of spirit, we will be blessed to come to understand his grace and his mercy. And that will transform us by his spirit into being a merciful people. I want to invite you, maybe you're tuning in today and you've never committed your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never received God's mercy. We read in the scriptures that God is both just and he is both merciful. We experience his great deep and the depth of his mercy because of his justice. These are not opposed concepts. That God, in order to be just, must punish wrongdoing and sin. And so God provides a way through sending Jesus to do this, to take that punishment. And as Jesus takes this from us, as he becomes a substitute for us, we receive God's rich mercy. And as we live our lives on this side of Jesus' return, we can experience his rich mercy. Well, as we close today, in a section of Luke's gospel, dedicated to Jesus' teaching about loving our enemies, Jesus says this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And so the invitation today is to experience God's mercy. And as we experience his mercy, as we know his mercy for us, the spirit transforms us to then go and to be merciful. And so may we do so. You are loved.